Welcome. This is the July 2019 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. The special section of this month's issue of AJPH is dedicated to the role of science in assessing public health risks associated with industrial products. We discussed two cases prominently featured in the news recently. Ovarian cancers linked to asbestos present in talc powder and glyphosate contained in the herbicide Roundup associated with cancer and neurological troubles. The two companies which produce the talc and the herbicides are losing ground in tribunals with massive financial and marketing consequences. A wealth of recent books and movies are showing the dark, immoral, capitalistic side of some corporations and their environmental cynicism. But in this podcast, I instead address the complex relationships between corporations and governmental agencies when consumers' public health comes into question. It is, as the introductory song says, about science and conscience. I start with the historian David Rosner, who, with his colleagues, studied the confidential documents that Johnson Johnson released as part of legal cases involving the carcinogenicity of talc powder. I then get the perspective of Howard Roddenberg, a former health officer in Kansas, a leading farming state and one of the biggest users of herbicide glyphosate. My third interviewee is Jonathan Samet, who is a veteran of the Tobacco Master Settlement Agreement of 1998 and who led several WHO review committees on carcinogenicity of environmental agents. I am Alfredo Morabia, Editor-in-Chief of AJPH, and we are June 3rd, 2019. I'm reaching out now to David Rosner. He's a professor of history with the Department of Sociomedical Sciences at the Mailman School of Public Health, Columbia University, New York. I'm trying to understand how could Johnson Johnson have underestimated the risk of selling a powder containing asbestos. And in doing that, how could it jeopardize its public image as a family-friendly company producing baby shampoo and baby powder, whose former owner endowed the highly respected and independent Robert Wood Johnson Foundation? David, we're talking about Johnson & Johnson, talc and, and asbestos and cancer, you know, how did People start to think that there may be any danger related to the baby powder. As late as, you know, early as the 1940s, there were these hints that talc might contain asbestos. NIOSH had come out with a statement in the 1970s. They said there's no TLV, there's no, no threshold below which 
but we can say that people will not be at risk of cancer if they come in contact with asbestos at any level. So this was a huge statement. And so suddenly there's this issue of, you know, real attention to asbestos, the fact that very low levels of asbestos can be related to cancer, these two major cancers, lung cancer and mesothelioma, and that uh, we had to wonder whether or not our consumers were being exposed to dangerous levels of materials. The FDA, which had been a pretty quiet agency when it came to real regulation, was really brought into the mix in 73 when they said, well, you know, if that's a real issue, we have to find, we have to really have the places where consumers are exposed to asbestos inspected. We have to be to look at cosmetics, for example. And they called together all the cosmetics makers to say, what should we do about this? Because we know from past historical work that off-the-shelf talc products, baby powders, contained low levels of tremolite, a form of asbestos. What do we do about this? Because we know that there's a possibility that talc is coming from the same geologic structures. And how do we begin to identify this issue? This, of course, was a major concern for the industry. Suddenly, baby powder, you know, the talc powders are used in all Mm -hmm. their cosmetics, but especially uh, that are being dumped on children, might contain a carcinogen. And they needed to figure out what to do about it. It's a giant you know, public relations issue. So what was the reaction of the industry when they learned that uh, there was asbestos in the talc? You had the CTFA, the Cosmetics Talc and Fragrance Association, which was a trade association for virtually all the talc manufacturers and all the cosmetics manufacturers. In the 1970s, it became the gathering point for all the cosmetics industry, and they were approached by the FDA. So the CTFA really, you know, organized to try to figure out whether there was a method for identifying asbestos and talc at low levels. But my understanding, David, is that uh, FDA was proposing a technique which would have detected the presence of 0.1% of the talc having, you know, some asbestos, which is already billions of fibers. But the industry went with a technique that couldn't detect below 1%, so 10 times more fibers. Right. So what was the advantage? I mean, did they underestimate the risk that was associated with asbestos? Because it was clear, I mean, they they would sell asbestos, they would have problems on the long run. There were all these arguments that began about whether or not the methodology the FDA developed was any better or any safer than any other methodology. And that was the problem. But so faced. why did, yeah, but why didn't the uh, federal agency, the, the Food and Drug Administration, impose its method? They had no legal right to do it. Um, that was one of the things. The FDA had no right historically to control the production of, of cosmetics. They could inspect, they could measure, they could use their moral authority, but there was no legal authority to actually regulate this industry. It wasn't a food which there was, uh, there had been regulations on food, and it wasn't an agricultural product, and there may have been some agricultural agencies that the, the ag department might have controlled it if it was pesticide. 
But this was one of these issues that the FDA, which was an underfunded agency, which was not very powerful, that was facing a huge set of companies, really didn't want to tangle with, I think. That's my interpretation of it. What's the main lesson that you draw from this story? The message is we have to be a little more suspicious. We should be using the precautionary principle. If we have doubt about something, we shouldn't just say, yes, continue using something or doing something. We should be using the precautionary principle, which is essentially until you can really show that this material is safe, until we can really show and really be assured that talc does not have asbestos in it, for example, even at low levels, we should not be exposing people to it. Science rhymes with conscience, but should we trust this consonant? Bicycle rhymes with bicycle. I am exploring now the same question of why the antagonism of some corporations to independent science can lead them to act contrary to their long-term sustainable interests. Howard Roddenberg is now physician with Baptist Health, Jacksonville, Florida, and was formerly director of the Division of Health in the state of Kansas. What do you do when you want to protect the health of the public in an environment in which ethics, moral responsibility, and environmental justice are conflictual concepts? Listen, Howard, there's something in your editorial. You talk about framing how important science is for the industry in a context that would attract the attention of uh, the corporation. So how do you do that? Well, as, as you may know, I spent a few years as director of the Division of Health at, uh, in the state of Kansas, in this Kansas State Health Officer. And one thing I learned very quickly is that different places have to frame arguments in different ways in order to them, for them to be accepted. And in a conservative-type environment such as Kansas, the arguments have to be framed in the context of business, of economics, uh, and less in terms of social justice and things of that sort. It doesn't mean the social justice approach isn't warranted. It doesn't mean it's not right and correct, because in many places it is. But it's a matter of finding people where they live. And so when we talk about the responsibility of industry and science, or, or I should say the relationship between industry and science, uh, you can go at it from the standpoint of, Industry has a moral responsibility to follow the knowledge of science or to follow the dictates of science. And the second you set that up as a moral judgment kind of thing or a responsibility that you're being bad or evil if you don't do it, you've automatically chosen sides and you've automatically set up an adversarial relationship. On the other hand, if you recognize that where business is coming from is they're coming from a profit motive, at least in a capitalistic system. They're coming from the approach of what's going to be best for the company and they are not beholden to you or beholden to science or beholden to anybody except their shareholders, once you understand that, you can come up with a better approach of how to deal with them on public health issues and issues of what science can and can't do for them. And to say, look, this is not an issue of, it's not a moral judgment. It's not that we're right and you're wrong. It's not that you have a responsibility to do what we say because we have the higher ground. It's a matter of, look, this is what we found out, and this is the implications for your company. And you can take that or leave that information. But, you know, this is, this is the economic impact of what we're saying. 
And that, I think, is the argument that gets attention rather than making it into a, into a moral judgment. Gotcha. But wasn't it what happened with Johnson and Johnson? Because uh, 50 years ago, you know, they, they were warned that they were too much asbestos in their talc and this it was known to be a carcinogen. So uh, what was the mistake in the way the whole issue was framed or how would you have framed it in order to convince Johnson and Johnson? Well, it's, you know, it's always hard to go back 50 years, and we have made incredible progress in 50 years in our awareness of environmental epidemiology. Uh, we've made tremendous strides in terms of holding companies responsible. Um, it's hard to know how you would have phrased that argument 50 years ago other than to say, okay, you know, we have some evidence at this time that any asbestos is a bad thing. If, the, if, if you guys are settling for some asbestos, you know, that can be used against you publicly. That uh, isn't a good look for your company. Nowadays, it would be much easier because nowadays with our litigious system, we can say, hey, you know, there's good evidence that says that any asbestos is a bad thing. Uh, and if it's found that there is asbestos in your talc, you guys are going to get sued. But most importantly, I think they've lost their image because Johnson & Johnson had a great image as a company, you know, baby powder, baby shampoo, etc., so yeah, I, how could I, they get there? Yeah, I mean, I I, abs I absolutely agree with you. I mean, when my kid was small, I used you know Johnson's baby shampoo. I mean, that's that's what you did. Um, and there's a huge loss of prestige for the company, and I think we're seeing that right now. If I remember right, in the last week, you know, I'm, I can't remember the exact company, but the Roundup herbicide. There's just a two billion dollar settlement, and that's going to be the tip of the mm -hmm. iceberg. Um, I do think we are in different times, and so I don't think. Again, I may be overly optimistic, but I don't think we're going to have those same kind of abuses of science or ignorant, not ignorance, I'm sorry, uh, but of ignoring what science has to say about asbestos and talc, about uh, nicotine, cigarettes, that sort of thing. I don't think we're going to see that anymore because I think our system has fortunately evolved past that. Howard, in your experience, uh, have you seen companies uh, which showed a, an interest in the result of uh, scientific studies and uh, that uh, took them into consideration when uh, producing specific, you know, uh, things or services? Oh, I, I think those examples are all around us if we just kind of kind of open our eyes to them. I mean, in my little, I've got a little tray at home that I put all my bills and, and mail that I need to look at. And there is something in there already for an airbag recall on uh, one of my cars. That's an example of how, you know, a corporation will take that scientific information. Obviously, they knew something more about airbags than they did at the time um, and want a voluntary recall so they can fix the problem. That answers the risk management issue. That uh, burnishes the company's reputation of looking out for you because we're going to give you this uh, recall. We're going to give you this repair for free, uh, and it keeps the shareholders happy. And I think anytime there's a voluntary recall of some of some kind of product, that's a perfect example of what that process looks like. But in the case of uh, Monsanto now is by uh, and uh, glyphosate, they've been extremely aggressive against. Uh, the uh, International Agency for Research on Cancer. They even tried last uh, fall to get Congress to remove its subsidies, you know, financial subsidies to the uh, to the agency. And, and don't you think there there are two types or several types of companies, and some of them will keep being very aggressive? 
Well, I don't know that there are several types of companies. I mean, all companies basically play this play by the same rules. Um, the difference is not so much the rules are different, but the attitude uh, the attitude towards the consumer is different. So, you know, all companies have to try to make a profit. All companies have to uh, be responsible to their shareholders. All companies have to engage in risk management. The degree to which they do each of those may differ. So some companies may be incredibly responsive to shareholders, incredibly responsive to consumers, um, and incredibly cautious in the way they approach risk management. And others may be incredibly aggressive to the point where they actually put the, put the, uh, put the company itself in jeopardy, which I think is what's happening with the, with the Roundup herbicide. Um, so again, I would, I would disagree with you that there are several kinds of companies. I mean, there is one kind of company. Uh, everybody plays by the same rules. It's just a matter of to what degree they put emphasis on those rules. The regulators don't have the bite. It's going to be the legal system that does. Doctor says yes. It's a yes. Doctor says no. Then it's a no. If there's one thing I sure can say. My doctor will never betray. Science rhymes. On the basis of my first interviewees, we may conclude that cases like the one of talc powder, asbestos and cancer are from a past when corporations felt immune to health concerns of the public. However, my next interviewee, Jonathan Samet, Dean and Professor at the Colorado School of Public Health, tells us the story of Bayer Monsanto, a company that recently used aggressive tactics against independent scientists who were involved in a monograph published by the International Agency for Research on Cancer, concluding that the herbicide glyphosate is a probable carcinogen. Listen, John, can you tell us what's the core of the controversy about this uh, herbicide that uh, Monsanto produces? You know, I would probably say there's several controversies, but the one that uh, I focus on in the editorial relates to what happened after the International Agency for Research on Cancer, the WHO Cancer Agency, in Lyon, France, classified glyphosate as a probable carcinogen. But John, remind us, how does IARC do his work, I mean, in terms of assessing whether an agent is a probable carcinogen? The uh, Botograph classifications come from the work of a working group, a, a panel typically of 15, 20 outside experts who volunteer their time to review the scientific evidence related to exposure to the agent, the mechanistic information, the animal bioassay information, and also epidemiological information. IARC has a scheme for integrating this uh, information. It's described in the preamble to the monographs. And so the those working on these panels commit to advanced work, and this culminates with the final classification uh, within the IARC system of the strength of evidence for carcinogenicity. So, so those experts are, are paid to do that? No, these are volunteers, and I've done this many times, and I can assure you it is a great deal of effort. So typically, they have reviewed materials and written drafts in advance of the meetings. They, at IARC, for an eight-day 
very intense meeting typically. And sometimes there's work afterwards just to simply do the editorial cleanup to produce a high quality volume. So would you say it's a process that generates an independent assessment of risk? Yes, that is certainly the intent is to have an independent assessment. IR carefully vets for uh, conflicts of interest at several points across the process. And, and if there is indication of conflict, somebody might be removed from the uh, working group or placed into some category other than a, a working group member. So there's careful attention to the conflict of interest potential. And so why would a company not respect this type of assessment? There's important consequences of these decisions. And, and, and in the case of glyphosate, it was classified as a, a probable carcinogen, not, not a definite one. So IRC has, you know, uh, a group one carcinogen where there's sufficient evidence, group two probable evidence. And that has been deemed as a level of strength of evidence that uh, lawyers in the U.S. at the moment have proceeded to sue. Mm -hmm. How did Monsanto react when IR came out with its conclusion? Right. I, I think what is unusual in this case is the intensity of the focus on IARC, the working group, IARC's funding, sort of a, an out-and-out -out sort of broad sweep uh, by the company uh, against the IARC and its uh, participants. The working group chair uh, ended up deposed around the litigation, around the happenings at IR. It was a very, uh, I use the word, troubling set of publications that came out where the connections of the authors back to uh, Monsanto and Monsanto funding were not clear. So, you know, there was a pretty broadly based initiative to try and make certain that a positive conclusion of on causation was not mm -hmm. reached. But John, so in this case, when uh, these other papers, they might have had the conflict of interest. I mean, the difference with IARC is that they really try to uh, control those conflicts of interest and come out with an independent assessment. Whereas if someone is paid by Monsanto to generate a scientific paper, we cannot guarantee that there is no conflict. Mm -hmm. Right. I think in the case of the uh, papers, and again, this is a story that's now well documented, what makes this set of papers of concern was that, in fact, initially the connections, the potential conflicts of the authors were not revealed and came up later. Monsanto's reaction was typical, or was it stronger or weaker than what we've seen in the past? I think probably there's a few unique features of this. I mean, one is attempting to get at the funding of uh, the monographs program at IR by the company. And second, I think the, the actual questioning, uh, the volunteers on the working group uh, raising questions there, the chair uh, ending up uh, subpoenaed to uh, give depositions <clears throat> might discourage people from uh, stepping into important, sometimes controversial, uh, scientific uh, matters. So would there be some protections that could be implemented in order to avoid the reproduction of this situation in the future? That's a very interesting question. I actually uh, recently uh, 
chaired a rewriting, a redrafting of the IARC preamble. And, and the IARC preamble is essentially at the front of each volume and, and details the methods, approaches that are used by IARC in uh, reaching these very important classifications. We, in rewriting, paid a lot of attention to the conflict of interest, potential conflict of interest story. And, uh, you know, more attention there may help assure that the process itself is as transparent as possible. I think the uh, question you asked, is there any sort of protection to use your word, is challenging. I'm not sure that I know offhand, and maybe we all need to think about this, what a mechanism might be that protects um, individuals. How you can protect against sort of more intensive attacks, I'm not sure. There are at least three take-home messages that come out of these interviews. Some are reassuring, but others not. The first message is that agencies that install careful procedures to assess the risk of industrial products and services in a way that is free of conflicts of interest and that strictly has the health of the public in mind these agencies are indispensable. They need to be supported, protected, and respected. It is not possible for corporations to assess the risk associated with their own products because their primary concerns are related to their financial health. This is true for all corporations, even though some of them do ensure that their practices and products are vetted by independent science. The second message, which is reassuring, is that today corporations are increasingly realizing that it is in the interest of their stakeholders to respect independent risk assessments. They will be easier to convince when scientists express their conclusions in terms that make sense in their corporate vision of the world. However, the third message is extremely worrisome and requires urgent action. The infamous tactics used by Bayer Monsanto to scare voluntary scientists and muzzle the International Agency for Research on Cancer are a major threat for the survival, and I insist, the survival of independent, peer-reviewed science. If these tactics become the new normal, volunteer scientists will become hard to find and everyone, the public and corporations, will be hurt. I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their time and willingness to share their ideas. I also thank Emily D'Agostino for assisting me with the production of the podcast. Thank you also Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. Francis Jacob wrote the tune Science and Conscience, which is sung by Pauline Jacob. 
This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to it on Android or iPhone podcast app, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, or on any other podcast app. That's it. Thank you for listening.